Well, Bryce read our sermon text for us, which again, if you have a Bible, you can turn back to. It is Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. Also, for those who have uh, younger children here, if you did not get, uh, we are handing out some some kids' packets uh, right when you walk in the door that can go along with the sermon, give you some activities and things to to work on. If you missed those on the way in, uh, you're welcome to go now and grab one. I won't be offended if you walk out, so long as you stay for the sermon. Just kidding. Uh, But please avail yourself of those if you didn't get one. Thank you to Ashley uh, for putting those together. But again, we are in Colossians 1. We're in verses 9 through 14, and this is our our second uh, look at chapter 1. Last week, as we opened our study of this letter, we looked in the first seven to eight verses, and we looked specifically in Colossians 1 last week at the example of this man with a funny name, this man named Epaphras, who we met in verse 7. And we also last week looked at uh, the engine that fueled this man. So we had the example of Epaphras, and then we had the engine that fueled his work and his witness. Because if you remember last week, this man with a funny name, again, Epaphras, we met in verse 7. Yes, he, 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 uh, he lived in a different time, in a different place. Yes, he lived in a, a different context. And, and yes, his name is immortalized here in Holy Scripture. But we began to see last week that by all accounts, he was actually similar to us. That by all accounts, he was an ordinary man. That he had traveled, if you recall, roughly 100 miles from his hometown of Colossae to the city of Ephesus where Paul had been preaching. We assume Epaphras had been converted under the preaching ministry of Paul and then returned back to his hometown of Colossae where he shared the good news. He shared the gospel of Christ Jesus and it was his faithful witness that ultimately God used to birth the Colossian church. To, the, to now who Paul writes. And so again, we see that, yes, this man Epaphras was a faithful witness, but ultimately it was an example of God using an ordinary man to accomplish extraordinary things. And we know that God continues to do the same thing today. So we saw that example of Epaphras in those first few verses. But we also saw last week this engine, if you will, that fueled his evangelistic zeal. We saw the engine that fueled the faithful witness and the faithful reputation of the Colossian church. And that engine was mentioned in verse 5. It was the hope laid up for them in heaven. The blessed hope of being known and loved by God. The blessed hope of knowing our sins have been forgiven. The blessed hope of knowing that we will spend eternity in God's glorious presence. You see, it was the gift of God in salvation through Christ that enabled men like Epaphras, enabled men like Paul, enabled uh, people like the Colossian church to work and to run and to be active for the sake of the kingdom because they've already been accepted. They've already been brought into God's family. So they work then with this zeal of acceptance. They don't work in order to get God's acceptance. It's already been given. But then they work from that acceptance and they can do great things for the sake of the kingdom. And again, the same thing is true for you and I this morning. 
In fact, if you go back and look at verses 9 through 14, which is our sermon text for today, those are the verses that, that Bryce read for us, you actually find Paul uh, still in this train of thought, if you will, where he is elaborating on what it is that makes the Christian life go. He's beginning to unpack more and more this, this engine. And what he points out is just as important today, you know, in 21st century uh, Lake Worth, as it was in 1st century Colossae. And it's just as important because I mentioned last week that we can have this um, ultimately harmful habit, let's call it, where we can put the people we encounter in Scripture on these pedestals. And I'm not talking about, about Christ, but, the, but these ordinary folks that we encounter in Scripture, we can put them on a, on a pedestal, like we mentioned last week, and think to ourselves that, that we can never accomplish the same things that they accomplished. We can never be used by God in the same uh, mighty or impactful ways, but again, that's to misunderstand how God works. He's always uh, drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. He's always uh, accomplishing extraordinary things, again, through ordinary people like you and I. Well, in the same way, we can also sometimes develop this habit where we, we begin to think that somehow faithfulness to God in a, in a life of discipleship requires more today than what God has already given to us. We can believe in a way that the New Testament was some kind of like, you know, spiritual Mayberry. It was the good old days where, you know, people could, could progress in the Christian life and could be effective in discipleship in ways that, you know, just isn't really realistic today. And just like we can wax, you know, eloquent about the good old days where you could go to the movies, you know, and, and get a, a, a can of pop for 10 cents, right, and we reflect on how good that used to be. Well, the same thing happens sometimes in our Bibles where we say, oh, the New Testament was like the spiritual Mayberry, the good old days, where living a life devoted to Christ was somehow more conducive. There was more power given. But today, I mean, let's be honest, don't we need something more advanced? Something more sophisticated, a, a better spiritual remedy, a more powerful spiritual engine to produce faithfulness in our lives. But ultimately that way of thinking is dangerous and it's not helpful. And we're going to see why in a moment. Uh, by way of illustration though, I mentioned before that when my wife and I were first married, we actually lived, speaking of Mayberry, we lived in our first apartment complex down in Fort Lauderdale uh, that was actually called Mayberry Mansions. And I, and I told you before, I think, that that was a gross overstatement, that it was by no means Mayberry. Uh, we had crazy stories of, of very difficult neighbors and just this, it was an interesting place to live. So it was not Mayberry by any stretch. And it was an 800 square foot apartment. So the word mansion, you know, was a, a bit of an overstatement, right? Uh, so it was ultimately a misleading title to call it Mayberry Mansions. Well, in the same way, it's misleading Again, to think that the New Testament was some kind of, of spiritual Mayberry. And that discipleship and faithfulness and zeal for God and effectiveness for his kingdom was just somehow more conducive then uh, than it is now. Instead, what we see in these verses and what Colossians will go at great length to remind us of is there is only one timeless source of spiritual power. 
There is only one timeless engine that fuels the faithful life. And that lone engine is the finished work of Christ as it's been gifted to us in the gospel. The lone engine that makes the the Christian life go is the finished work of Christ as it's found in the gospel. Go back and look at verse 9. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, Paul makes plain that the gospel alone is the only engine in the fact that he, he begins to ask now on behalf of the Colossians for God to, to do something in their lives, for God to produce the, the, the things that he desires to see in their lives. But if you notice, Paul asks for it, not, not wishfully, as we continue to read those verses. He doesn't ask for those things wishfully or, or with fingers crossed behind his back. He doesn't ask for those things, you know, the way that uh, a child asks their parents for ice cream for dinner or, you know, no bedtime or, or a million dollars. He doesn't ask those things wishfully and, and, again, with fingers crossed behind his back. But rather, Paul asks for these things to happen in our lives, for us to be empowered towards faithfulness. And he does so by calling on the realities of God's grace that have already been brought into existence. Again, how does he say it? Asking, verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's verse 9. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. That's also in verse 10. Verse 11, may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice what Paul asks for. He asks, he wants them, he wants us to know God's will and to be wise, to walk in a manner worthy, to bear fruit in every good work. And then fourthly, to be marked by endurance, patience, joy, and thankfulness. That's it. <laughs> That's all. No small task, right? No, not an easy list. But what we begin to see here is that Paul's prayer isn't like the biblical equivalent of those, you know, those motivational posters where it'll say, like a cliche buzzword, you know, it'll say like, Excellence, and it'll have a picture of like a roaring tiger, and it's you, you, know, you hang it in your office, motivational poster. It's not the it's not the biblical equivalent here when Paul prays of uh, motivational speaking. Even you guys remember that Geico commercial that's out right now, and it says that Pinocchio is a terrible motivational speaker. Have you seen that one? Where he says you have potential and you have potential, and then his nose starts growing when he looks at one person. <laughs> right? Have you ever seen that commercial? Well, this is not the, you know, the biblical equivalent of that, but rather these things, knowing God's will and, and being wise, walking in a manner worthy, bearing fruit in every good work, being marked by endurance and patience and joy and thankfulness. These are the gifts that God has promised to us as a result of already receiving the gift of redemption, of salvation 
in Christ. They are actually the full extent of his grace that comes to us, right where he finds us, but then transforms us and begins to produce within us the very things that God desires. It's the full extent of his gift giving. Paul talks a lot about that in Ephesians, how God gives gifts to men. These things, again, are the full extent of God's grace to us, the full extent of his gifting love. If you've seen the uh, timeless classic, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, you'll recall that Clark Griswold, uh, the iconic character played by Chevy Chase, was expecting a very handsome annual bonus uh, like he got every year from his employer. In fact, he was expecting it and banking on it so much that he went and put a down payment on a pool for his home, if you've seen the movie. But then when Christmas rolls around, he realizes that, that bonuses had been slashed that year, and instead of getting a handsome percentage of his annual salary, he was enrolled, if you remember in the movie, in a Jelly of the Month Club. All right? Some of you have seen it and appreciate it there in the back. Uh, and if you remember, Clark Griswold is just flabbergasted, and he is uh, irate, and he is even despairing until Cousin Eddie, one of the greatest characters in movie history, uh, Cousin Eddie says, well, Clark, that's just the gift that keeps on giving the whole year, right? The Jelly of the Month Club, right? Well, again, in a, in a cheesy and in a, a similar way, the grace of God in Christ is the gift that keeps on giving, it keeps on giving, it keeps on working, it keeps on transforming and bearing fruit within the soil of our hearts where it's planted. And not just through the whole year, but through our whole lives. Through our whole existence, which is now hid within Christ. The same grace that birthed and ignited our faith is the same grace that now fuels the life of faith and transforms us. Again, it is the power, it is the engine. Look what he says again at, at verse 11. Being strengthened, being strengthened with all power according to what? To your might? According to your strength? To your resolve? To your uh, teeth gritting determination? No. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Focusing on what God has already done graciously for us in Christ. Because where does Paul go? Look down at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has done what? Qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, delivered you from the domain of darkness. Also verse 13, transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. In verse 14, a kingdom in which we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Again, notice how all these things have already been done. They've already been secured for us in Christ. All the active verbs, if you will, in this passage have as their subject God. God the Father. It's the finished work of Christ. It's his strength that animates us. And then watch then how Paul works this out. So ask yourself this question. Remember the, the things he prays for us. To know the will of God was the first one. And to be wise. Have, all, to be, 
to have all spiritual wisdom? How do we come to know the will of God? How do we come to grow in our knowledge of it and to, to be wise? And how is this not just, you know, spiritual cliche or, 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 or pie-in-the-sky spirituality? Well, again, the answer is found in this text. We can know the will of God by continually reflecting on all that he's already done for us. Again, what are those active verbs? He's qualified us, delivered us, transferred us, redeemed us, forgiven us. And when we reflect on those things, when we reflect on that, that saving activity of God, it's not as if in that moment we're given some kind of spiritual crystal ball where from that point forward we'll now know every detail and every minutia of life ahead of us. There, there's still going to be mystery. There's still going to be trying and uncertain times. But what happens is that when we look back to the amazing and active grace of God in our past, particularly when we look back at the active and amazing grace of God before the foundation of the world, which was active in our salvation before we even came on the scene, what does that tell us then about the will of God for our lives? It tells us that ultimately the will of God for your life is good. It's good. It's gracious. It's still aimed at our good and his glory. And again, it might not always feel that way. There might be trying circumstances and situations that still come in. But when the world seems like it's spinning off its axis, and when, and when life seems like it's, it's falling apart all around us, we can still trust, we can still taste and see that God is good, his intentions are good because of what he's already done for us redemptively in the gospel. What does Paul say elsewhere? If God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us willingly, will he not along with him give us all things? You see, again, the will of God for your life, the will of God for my life as we are hidden in Christ is ultimately good. It's ultimately for our good and his glory. But what are those other things that Paul prayed for? How do we, how do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? How do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him? That was Paul's second request, if you remember. And particularly, how do we walk worthy in a world like today, which is so just crazy and, and chaotic and seems about to, you know, come off its foundation? How do we walk in a manner worthy, fully pleasing to him? Again, by reflecting on what he's already done for us, qualified us, delivered us, transferred us, redeemed us, forgiven us. Because you see, when we reflect on those things and they remind us of God's goodness, what happens is that we begin to trust the Lord more and more. When we believe that his will for us is good, we begin to functionally trust him more and more. We begin to believe more and more that he truly is for us and not against us. And when you trust someone, what begins to happen? Your feet naturally follow. Obedience naturally begins to spring up. Think about that in other areas of your life. If you play sports and you have a coach that instructs you and wants to bring you along and, 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 and make you the player that you can become, we're only going to trust his instruction if he has a resume that he can stand on or if you begin to see the fruit of what he is telling you to do. If you are looking to invest money 
you're only going to go to a financial advisor who, who, again, has a reputation they can stand on and who has, been, has evidence <laughs> that he knows what he's talking about, right? Well, the same thing is true in the gospel. Think about it. The resume of Christ is faithful, faithful all the way to the cross. He has a relationship with us where we've seen his goodness, his rescue of us in our sin and our shame. And so we naturally then want to follow him beyond the point of salvation into now the rest of his will for our lives. Think about in the Gospels all the people that Christ encounters. He encounters them in their sin and their shame. He encounters the demon possessed and he cleanses them. He encounters the woman caught in adultery and he forgives her and doesn't judge her. He encounters the sick and the lame. And what happens is that when they experience that grace of God, they naturally now want to follow him. They want to follow his leading elsewhere into the other places of life. That trust births obedience. And again, we see that here in our lives as well. We begin walking worthy because we trust more and more the one who's leading us. The one who's instructing us. Consider Paul's third request for us in prayer. How do we bear fruit in every good work? That's kind of tied to that second one. How do we bear fruit in every good work? Again, by continually reflecting on what God has already done. Qualified, transferred, delivered, redeemed, forgiven. You see, if those realities teach us that God's will for us is good, and if that goodness builds trust, then that trust begins to evidence itself in the working of our hands. And our fruitful good works begin to spring up, and they spring up in the same pattern, if you will, that God's work came to us. Because ask yourself this question, as you consider the good works that you are called to as a Christian, as you consider the witness that we're supposed to have in the watching world, ask yourself this question. When God's love came to us, were we at that moment worthy recipients? Of course not, right? When God's love came to us, had we earned it or, or, or proven ourselves deserving? No, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, he reconciled us through his son. So then the good works that we are now called to, the, the fruit that we're called to bear, the good works we're called to on behalf of our neighbors and our cities and our communities, they're not supposed to wait either. They're not supposed to wait until those around us seem worthy or deserving. But rather what happens? Grace and love always make the first move. Just like that grace and love made the first move to us and our salvation. You see, as we come to the end of this passage, we shouldn't miss how in our salvation, God supplied the very righteousness that he demanded but he supplied it for us in Christ. And then don't miss here how then in our Christian growth or what we call sanctification, he also supplies the very things that we're called to. And he supplies those things and he produces those things again by pointing us continually back to his once and for all finished work of redemption. And when we, when we let, really let that sink in and we really, we really grasp that, then that fourth and final request in Paul's prayer begins to really 
evidence itself in our lives. And that fourth request, if you remember, was that we would be people marked by endurance. This is now um, verse 11 and 12. That we would be people marked by endurance, patience, joy, and thankfulness. Can you think of anything harder in today's world (laughs) than those things mentioned? To have endurance in the face of life's twists and turns. To have patience in the midst of a world that seems, again, ready just to come apart. To have joy even in trying times and pandemics and circumstances beyond our control. To be thankful to the Father, regardless of the season of life. You see, a life that's steady and grounded, a life that countercultural and, and anchored, a life that faithful and fruitful, again, is only possible, only possible, when we consider all that God has already done for us. He's qualified us, delivered us, transferred us, forgiven us, redeemed us, and nothing can change that. Nothing can alter or shake or ultimately crumble that foundation. And if he was at work in your life, if he was at work in your salvation, before even the foundation of this now chaotic world, he's still at work today. He's still with you, working all things together for good, for his glory. And he will continue to work things out. He will continue to bring things to their full completion in Christ. For the work that God starts, he always finishes. May that be our hope. May that be our prayer. May that be the source of our endurance, our patience, our joy, and our thankfulness because of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for your activity in our lives. We thank you for your activity in redemption before we were even born. We thank you that you loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We thank you, Lord, that we have also experienced that love and that grace personally. That it is not just an idea in Scripture, it is not just a theological concept, Lord, but we have experience that love and that grace that has come our way in Christ and has been applied to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, would you enable us, we pray, would you again strengthen us, as this text says, according to the power of your glorious might. May we not look to those things around us which wobble and which, which crumble and which shake, but may we ultimately look to that firm foundation that is ours in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the love that's come our way, the companionship that we have with you through our lives. You truly are Emmanuel, God with us. And so once again, Lord, we give you all the glory, and we thank you again for your word, which encourages us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.